welcome to First Incision, the podcast about preparing for the General Surgery Fellowship exam. I'm your host, Amanda Nikolic. Let's get started with our team timeout. Our patient today is the Surgical Oncology module from the General Surgical Curriculum. And the Operation or topics we'll be covering today are soft tissue sarcomas, and this includes some comments from my chat with Julie Howell about how to manage and work up these tumours, as well as a little bit about desmoid tumours. So let's start with some general information about sarcomas. Sarcomas are tumors that are derived from mesenchymal tissues. So these are the connective tissues such as muscle, fat, bone, cartilage, and fibrous tissue, as well as blood and lymphatic vessels. So sarcomas can really occur at any site. Lucky they are rare, so they account for only 1% of all malignancies. And in terms of sarcomas, 15% are retroperitoneal and about 80% occur in the extremities and the trunk. Sarcomas typically metastasize using hematogenous roots, so they often go to the lungs and it's very rare that they go to regional lymph nodes. Only about 5% will have lymph node metastases, although that's higher in some specific subtypes. There are so many different types of sarcomas. If you look up a list, there's like 50 different types. But lucky for us, some of them are more common, and I think that's what I'm going to target my study for the exam around. In general, the different types of sarcoma are named according to their tissue of origin. So, for example, there's types of malignant tumors that come from fat cells, and this includes dedifferentiated liposarcoma, myxoid liposarcoma, and pleomorphic liposarcoma. Or there's tumors that come from malignant skeletal muscle. So these are all called rhabdomyosarcomas, and there's different types, including embryonal, alveolar, pleomorphic, or spindle cell. I'm sure you're getting where I'm going with this at this stage, but I'm not going to go through all of the names of the different types of sarcomas, but just briefly, tumors that come from smooth muscle are called lyomyosarcomas. Tumors that come from vessels are called hemangioendotheliomas. Tumors that originate from fibroblasts are called fibrosarcomas. And tumors that come from nerves are called peripheral nerve sheath tumors. And the last group to be aware of are the undifferentiated or unclassified sarcomas, which are described by their appearance, such as spindle cell sarcomas or pleomorphic sarcomas. I would definitely look up the WHO list of different types of sarcomas. In terms of the common ones, so an undifferentiated pleomorphic sarcoma is quite common, liposarcomas, myxofibrosarcomas, lyomyosarcomas, synovial sarcomas, malignant peripheral nerve sheath tumors, and angiosarcomas are probably the more common, at least peripheral types of sarcomas. The other important thing to know about sarcomas is that their care is best managed at a sarcoma-specific centre. And from the perspective of wanting to be a safe surgeon for the exam, sarcomas are very rare, but if you don't have a high index of suspicion and you do an inappropriate operation on a sarcoma and the pathology ends up being a sarcoma, those patients have up to threefold increased risk of local recurrence and poor outcomes. So I think in the exam, being really mindful and having sarcoma on your list of differentials and taking the safest approach when talking about soft tissue masses is probably what they want us to be doing in the exam. So what are the risk factors for the development of soft tissue sarcomas? Most sarcomas are thought to be sporadic, so that there's no pre-existing reason that a patient would get the sarcoma. But there are a few potential carcinogens or causes that are related to sarcomas. The first of these is radiation exposure. So radiation exposure to treat other malignancies increases the risk of a sarcoma in that area. Interestingly, the time frame between the radiotherapy and the development of a sarcoma is usually about 10 years or more. In terms of other carcinogens that are associated with the development of sarcoma, 
Vinyl chloride, which is used in making plastics, has been associated with sarcomas of the liver and also angiosarcoma. Arsenic has also been associated with liver sarcomas. Exposure to dioxin or phenoxyacetic acid, which can be found in herbicides, has also been associated with sarcoma development, but not completely proven. There are some familial cancer syndromes that are associated with the development of sarcoma. This includes neurofibromatosis 1, which is associated with the development of neurofibromas, malignant peripheral nerve sheath tumors, which are a type of sarcoma, and brain tumors such as gliomas and astrocytomas. And NF1 is associated with a defect in the NF1 gene. The next one is Gardner's syndrome, which is essentially a type of familial adenomatous polyposis with a defect in the APC gene. And in this condition, patients get multiple colonic polyps and they also get desmoid tumors. Another is the retinoblastoma gene mutation. And retinoblastoma gene mutations result in a type of eye cancer in children, but also patients who are treated for this with radiotherapy have very high risk of developing a bone or soft tissue sarcoma. Next one is Lee-Fromeni syndrome. And this is a syndrome associated with a P53 mutation. If we remember, a P53 is a tumor suppressor gene, so these patients are at risk of a really wide range of different types of malignancies, and this includes sarcomas. And the last congenital or familial sarcoma syndrome I'll mention is Gorlin syndrome. This is also called nevoid basal cell carcinoma syndrome, so we'll be talking about this in the skin and soft tissue episodes. But basically, this is caused by a defect in the PTCH1 gene. And in addition to having lots of basal cell skin cancers, these patients have an increased risk of fibrosarcoma and rhabdomyosarcoma. And finally, the other risk factors include increasing age, chronic lymphedema, which predisposes patients to developing lymph angiosarcoma, and lastly, different viruses such as Carposi sarcoma, which is caused by a virus called human herpes virus 8. For this part of the podcast, I wanted to focus on soft tissue sarcomas, so not retroperitoneal sarcomas. And I think we should split this up into assessing a peripheral lump or a soft tissue lump And we'll also talk a little bit about when to be worried about a lipoma being a liposarcoma. So in our curriculum, it talks about taking an appropriate history and examination. So on history, you want to take a history of presenting complaint. So you want to know how the lump was identified, whether the patient noticed it themselves or was picked up on imaging. You want to know how long it's been there for, whether it's grown or changed, and if there's any associated symptoms such as pain or neurological symptoms. Neurological symptoms are important to ask about because pressure from the tumour or even invasion of the nerves can present with referred pain, paresthesias, or even a focal neurological deficit. And that's important decision-making that you have to take into account when considering the viability and functionality of any surgery that you're considering. You want to know how quickly the mass has grown because a fast-growing mass is more suspicious than something that's been there and unchanged for a decade. You also want to know if the patient has any prior history of malignancy, whether they've had any trauma or radiotherapy to the area, whether there's any other symptoms such as swelling, redness, heat to suggest an infection, for example, and whether they've noticed any other similar lesions elsewhere on the body or have had any other systemic associated symptoms. Systemic constitutional symptoms could include fevers, chills, night sweats, or unintentional weight loss, as well as other types of pain or new pains in areas that are unrelated, a cough, shortness of breath, or abdominal swelling. On physical examination, you want to start by visually assessing the mass and you want to have a look at the size, location and its relationship to any other structures. It's also important to comment on the overlying skin and whether there's any involvement or ulceration of the skin. 
On palpation, you want to feel the mass and see whether or not it's hard, soft, smooth, what its surface feels like, whether it's mobile to the underlying tissues, and to try to get an impression of the depth of the lesion. It's also important to have a look for any previous scars or biopsy sites, because as we'll talk about later, these will need to be incorporated into any surgery that you're planning to do. You should also examine the regional lymph nodes. As I mentioned earlier, most sarcomas spread hematogenously and will pop up in the lung or the liver, but some specific subtypes, so synovial sarcoma, epithelioid sarcoma, rhabdomyosarcoma, and clear cell sarcomas commonly will spread to the lymph nodes. You want to make sure you do a neurovascular examination to detect any involvement of the tumour with the blood vessels or nerves, as I've already mentioned. And you should look for evidence of systemic disease by auscultating the chest and feeling the abdomen and the liver edge. To round out your examination, you should look for any stigmata of genetic conditions, such as neurofibromatosis, by examining for cafe or lay spots and looking for auxiliary or groin freckling. So features that would make you suspicious that this is a sarcoma are lesions that are growing very quickly. Typically, these tumors are painless, not painful, so make sure that you don't get uh, twisted up in thinking if it doesn't have any pain that it can't be a sarcoma. The other thing to be aware of is that the bigger the size, the harder the consistency and the firmer that the lesion feels in relation to the investing fascia, so if it's involving or deep to the investing fascia, these are all suspicious features that should make you be thinking about a sarcoma. So the other thing that seems to come up a lot in the exam is what characteristics, either clinically or on imaging, would make you suspicious that a lipoma may be an atypical lipoma or a liposarcoma. If any of the following features are present, you should be thinking to yourself, I'm not just going to cut this out, I'm going to do further investigations such as an MRI and a biopsy. So clinical features include a size more than five centimetres a rapid growth phase, and if it's painful. And in terms of imaging characteristics, if it's deep to the fascia, if there's a non-fatty component, um, and that can be clinically as well, if you can feel a hard mass as part of the lipoma, or if on imaging there's a hard, um, a solid section to the lipoma, if there's vascularity on the ultrasound, if the lipoma has heterogeneous attenuation within it, if there's thick septae, and if there's evidence of infiltration into the adjacent structures. All of these are red flag symptoms for a lipoma. So what imaging is indicated if you're suspicious about a soft tissue mass? So as we've just mentioned, an ultrasound is often done to investigate soft tissue lesions and especially lipomatous lesions. And we've talked a little bit about some of the things that you might see on ultrasound that would make you suspicious. The next investigation for soft tissue tumours, and I'm not talking about retroperitoneal tumours here, I'm specifically talking about those on the limbs or the trunk, is usually an MRI scan. An MRI scan gives you good anatomical information, gives you a good look at the tumour itself and its relationship to and potential involvement of surrounding structures. And really, the MRI is a local staging modality. In terms of distant staging for sarcoma, this will typically be a CT scan of the chest as the lungs is the most likely site for metastatic disease. For lower limb soft tissue sarcomas, a CT abdomen and pelvis can also be used to assess for lymph nodes, or sometimes an ultrasound is used, especially in children. PET scan is another imaging modality that's sometimes used for soft tissue sarcomas. I don't think it would be said to be an upfront investigation that you would do for every sarcoma, but it can sometimes be used if there's suspicious lesions, if you're worried about metastatic disease, and also in order to identify the most pet avid aspect of a large lesion in order to help target your biopsy. I'd say I'd seen that used most commonly with retroperitoneal sarcomas, but I'm not sure how frequently it's used for peripheral limb or trunk sarcomas. 
The next investigation for a trunk or limb potential sarcomatous lesion is usually to involve a specialist service. So you should be talking to the centre in your state that looks after sarcomas and sending them the pictures and asking them for some advice. Most sarcoma centres are happy to organise further investigations such as biopsies from their end because often the biopsy tract has to be excised with any surgery that's done. So them having control over where the biopsy tract is going to be is often their preference. But usually a biopsy would be the next step. So no matter how good your imaging is, the biopsy is the key to the diagnosis. It's going to tell you whether or not it is a sarcoma. It's going to tell you what the subtype of sarcoma is and different sarcomas have different specific considerations. And it's also going to tell you the grade of the tumour, which again is going to guide your management. In terms of the biopsy itself, a core biopsy is preferred over an FNA as it's much more likely to get you the diagnosis. It should be organised under radiological guidance if it's not a surface malignancy and typically the biopsy will be targeted towards the most solid component of a lesion because you can get a benign tumour that then has a malignant aspect develop and that may only be one specific type or one specific part of the tumour itself. Our curriculum talks about the principles of biopsy of a soft tissue mass. In general, the things I've already talked about, so involving or referring to a specialist sarcoma center is important. Making sure the biopsy tract is in line with the limb incision that's going to be used. And it's described that you can take multiple cores, but you should try to do this through the same skin site. So once you have got a diagnosis with your biopsy and you've appropriately locally and distantly staged the patient, you need to figure out what the stage of the disease is. And the AJCC TNM staging system 8th edition has staging for soft tissue sarcomas of the extremity or trunk. The AJCC staging system for T-stage looks at the size of the tumour. And so T1 is tumours that are less than or equal to 5 centimetres in greatest dimension. T2 are tumours that are more than 5 but less than 10 centimetres. T3 are tumours that are more than 10 but less than 15 centimetres. And T4 are tumours that are more than 15 centimetres in greatest dimension. For the nodal staging, N0 is no regional node metastases and N1 is regional lymph node metastases. And for the M staging, M0 is no distant metastases and M1 is distant metastases. The interesting thing about the soft tissue sarcoma staging, though, is that when you then put it into the staging groups, it also considers the grade of the tumour. The grading for sarcomas is grade 1, 2, or 3, and this is determined based on evaluating the tumor differentiation, the mitotic count, and the evidence of tumor necrosis. So in terms of the different stage groups, stage 1A is a T1 tumor that's N0, M0, and is grade 1. Stage 1B is T2 to T4 tumours that are N0, M0 and grade 1. Stage 2 tumours are the same as stage 1A, so T1, N0, M0, but are either grade 2 or grade 3. Stage 3 tumours are split up into A and B as well. So stage 3A are T2 tumours that are N0, M0, but grade 2 or 3. And stage 3B are T3 or T4 tumours, no nodes, node metastases, but grade 2 or 3. And stage 4 are N1 or M1 disease that are any grade. So the reason it's good to know that the grading system is considered in the staging is that that obviously tells you that the grade of the tumour is related to the prognosis of the patient. So we've made it all the way through diagnosis and staging of the tumour. At this point, the patient should already have been referred to a sarcoma centre and they'll be discussed at a multidisciplinary team meeting to talk about further management. So let's move on to talk about management of limb soft tissue sarcomas. 
So in general, the treatment options, as with most tumors, includes chemotherapy, radiotherapy, and surgery. So let's start talking about chemotherapy. There are some subtypes of sarcomas that are chemosensitive, and this mostly are the bone sarcomas in children. For tumors arising from the soft tissue, chemotherapy is not really a standard of care used at this point in time, but as new chemotherapy agents and targeted treatments come around, hopefully further treatments for soft tissue sarcomas will be developed. The next type of treatment modality is radiotherapy, and radiotherapy in sarcoma can be given preoperatively, postoperatively, and even intraoperatively. For extremity soft tissue sarcomas, my reading indicates that postoperative radiotherapy should be offered to nearly everyone, especially patients at high risk of recurrence, so patients with high-grade large tumors. And you really would only exclude it if you had a wide margin of a T1, very small sarcoma. Radiotherapy can also be considered to be given preoperatively, The situations where you might consider that is if you had a tumor that was of borderline resectability and you might be able to downstage it and make it resectable with radiotherapy. If you had a specific histological subtype that was very sensitive to radiotherapy, such as a myxoid liposarcoma, where again, downstaging might be advantageous. And if the tumor is adjacent to critical structures, which after surgery would limit the dose of radiotherapy you would be able to give postoperatively. So the example I've read is if it's near the brachial plexus, for example, you may consider giving the radiotherapy preoperatively. The issue with giving preoperative radiotherapy from a surgical point of view is that it does have increased complications and wound complications after the operation and especially if you need to do a big flap reconstruction obviously if you can avoid that radiotherapy preoperatively that would be ideal and there's no survival difference or difference in local control whether you give the radiotherapy preoperatively or postoperatively in a resectable soft tissue sarcoma and so the last treatment option to talk about is surgery This surgery should be done in a specialist orthopedic sarcoma center. In general, for extremity soft tissue sarcomas, the options are amputation or what's called limb salvage surgery. And limb salvage surgery is now standard of care if possible in most patients. The principles of surgery for soft tissue sarcomas are that you need to obtain a wide resection margin, so it needs to be a negative margin with a cuff of healthy tissue all around the tumor, because you can get this pseudocapsule around the sarcoma due to its rapid growth phase, and that pseudocapsule can contain a lot of inflammatory tissue, but also little tongues of tumor within it as well. So it's not a true barrier, so you have to get healthy tissue around that. Obviously, there's a number of other considerations when thinking about um, doing surgery on an extremity sarcoma. There's specific factors to consider that are going to influence the extent and type of surgery that you do include the type of the tumor, its size and grade, importantly, the nature of the adjacent structures and whether they're invaded or involved in the tumor, whether the patient is fit for limb sparing surgery and whether limb sparing surgery is going to be possible. And in terms of whether it's going to be possible or not, you basically want to be able to remove the tumor with a good oncological operation. And that's going to take into account the risk of local and distant recurrence, but also that the reconstruction has an acceptable risk of complications and that the functional outcome is going to be equivalent or better than an amputation. And obviously the patient has to be on board and involved in this decision making. A couple of other surgical principles is that you want to excise the biopsy tract at the same time. And in terms of resection margins, you need to be taking at least a centimetre of healthy tissue around the tumour and up to five centimetres. And sometimes they even remove the entire tumour bearing compartment. I don't know if we would need to know this, but there is some nomenclature around the types of surgical margins for sarcoma. The original system was called the Enecking system, and then there's been a modification on this. 
So it talks about an intralesional margin as being a curatage or debulking of the tumor, a marginal margin, which is where the resection is within the pericapsular reactive zone or around that inflammatory zone around the capsule. A wide margin type A, which is inadequate, is where the normal cuff of tissue is less than a centimeter. A wide margin B, which is adequate, is where there's a more than one but less than five centimeter cuff of tissue taken around the tumor. And a curative is a normal cuff of tissue more than five centimeters. And the likelihood of local control is related to these margins. So if you take a curative margin, so more than five centimeters, then the risk of local recurrence is less than 10%. For an adequate margin, so between one and five centimeters, the risk of local recurrence is 11%. For an inadequate, so less than one centimeter cuff, the local control or risk of local recurrence is 18%. For a marginal, it's 40%. And if it's an intralesional, the risk of a local recurrence is over 80%. And the last treatment, just to briefly mention, is isolated limb perfusion. And we talk about this in the melanoma section of this podcast as well. Isolated limb perfusion is a procedure where you open the vessels to the limb, the inflow and outflow of the limb, and you cannulate these vessels and put on a tourniquet and you basically infuse into the limb um, chemotherapy, so either TNF-alpha or melphalan. And the idea being that you can deliver a really high dose of chemotherapy directly to the tumour without risking the systemic toxicity of the chemotherapy. This is only done at Peter Mac in Australia and I think would have a pretty limited um, application and would obviously have to be managed by a very specialty team. But I thought it was just good to mention that this is sometimes used in sarcoma. And the last thing I think is worth mentioning is whether or not to do a sentinel lymph node biopsy in trunk or extremity soft tissue sarcomas. In general, as we've already mentioned, most sarcomas are going to spread hematogenously and not to lymph nodes. However, there are a few subtypes that are much more likely to spread to the lymph nodes. And if you were looking at one of these subtypes, then you would consider a lymph node biopsy to help to stage the patient as positive lymph nodes have a high relationship to the prognosis of the patient. So some of those subtypes include rhabdomyosarcoma, epithelioid sarcoma, clear cell sarcoma, angiosarcoma, lyomyosarcoma, and synovial sarcoma. So in those cases, you might consider a sentinel lymph node biopsy at the same time of your surgery. Before I move on to retroperitoneal sarcomas, I just wanted to talk a little bit about liposarcoma because I did mention lipomas and when to be concerned about a lipoma being a malignancy. So in terms of liposarcoma, liposarcoma accounts for 20% of all soft tissue sarcomas. It arises from the adipocytes or fat cells and is most commonly found in the extremities, but we will also be talking about this for retroperitoneal sarcoma as well. Tumors arising from the fat cells can be considered intermediate or low-grade adipocytic tumors, and these are called atypical lipomatous tumors when they're on the extremities and are called well-differentiated liposarcomas when they're retroperitoneal. And these tumors have a very low risk of malignancy or spread to other sites and interestingly have this amplification of an MDM2 CDK4 gene, which can be tested for with fish. So if you do a biopsy of a lipoma and you're not sure whether it's a liposarcoma or an atypical lipomatous tumor, you can do the MDM2 fish amplification, which is how they can identify that it is a low-grade liposarcoma. In terms of the malignant types of adipocytic tumors, there are three main types. This includes a D-differentiated liposarcoma, a myxoid liposarcoma, and a pleomorphic liposarcoma. In terms of these subtypes, the um, myxoid or round cell liposarcomas have a special gene fusion, the FUS-CHOP gene fusion, which is interesting, and these metastasize to other soft tissue sites and to bone marrow. 
and pleomorphic liposarcoma, thankfully, is very rare. And lastly, before I move on, I would definitely suggest having a look at a couple of pictures online. So having a look at a myxofibrosarcoma, because I've seen this come up in spots before, and this is a tumor you can often see at the skin surface that's quite infiltrative and runs along fascial planes. And what you're seeing on the surface really is just the tip of the iceberg. And similar as well for a dermatofibrosarcoma protuberans that also can be seen on the skin surface. It's quite a superficial tumor that also infiltrates soft tissue for like centimeters beyond what you can see, obviously, on the outside. And for these tumors, a local excision can often lead to quite a poor outcome and need even wider margins in the long term that can be quite disruptive for patients. So um, have a look at pictures of what those actually look like and make sure that's on your differential diagnosis list for superficial lesions on the skin. So I'm going to roll right into some of the comments and discussion I had with Julie Howell, who's the surgical oncologist I talked to from Westmead Hospital about soft tissue sarcomas. I think this was really helpful in trying to distill down what we needed to know and some of the little important bits of information about some of the different types of soft tissue sarcoma. I hope you enjoy these comments and that they're helpful to you as they were to me. So in our curriculum, it talks about understanding and knowing about the targeted treatments for sarcomas. Are there any of these for soft tissue sarcomas of the trunk and limbs? So for limb sarcomas, um, if they're high grade, um, tend to be considered for adjuvant chemo. Um, and the adjuvant chemo that's most often given is doxorubicin and iphosphamide, which is quite toxic. So patient also needs to be fit enough to have that sort of regime. In terms of other treatments, so uh, you might have read for uh, dermatofibrosarcoma protuberans, if they're unresectable, you can, they, the patients can have um, imatinib as a targeted therapy. And I've had a patient who had a long-standing uh, DFSP and developed a fibrosarcoma within it, and which then metastasized eventually. And so they did try some imatinib with some success in that person for the metastatic disease. But again, that's a fairly case-by-case -case basis. So for the purpose of the exam, the DFSP, if it's unresectable, you try to shrink it with the imatinib and then resect it. Um, in terms of other targeted treatment, there's pazopanib, which is a tyrosine kinase inhibitor, which is a second or third line treatment, uh, usually for liposarcoma um, and some other sarcomas if they sort of, you know, want to try something. But there's not a lot. It's There's no magic BRAF inhibitor in the world of sarcoma. And uh, there are sort of trials using immune therapy, but there's not a lot of effective treatments for sarcoma in terms of um, systemic therapy, unfortunately. Thanks for that. It took up an entire section of our curriculum and I just was not really clear what they wanted us to know about it. So that's really helpful. Yeah, I think mainly for low-grade tumours, don't give them chemo. For high-grade, give them chemo. And I guess it's really the DFSP that's the main one. Another one that's of that I find interesting is angiosarcoma because it's quite sensitive to taxane uh, and we will often treat them in the neoadjuvant setting with um, paclitaxel, which often shrinks the tumour quite a bit. One of the things I don't have a good handle on um, just from looking at soft tissue sarcomas is there's so many of them um, in the, like I think for retroperitoneal, if we know about leiomyosarcoma and uh, liposarcoma, we're, we're pretty, pretty good. But in terms of soft tissue sarcomas, there's so many different types and they all seem to have a little bit of a, a nuance, you know, whether they might go to lymph nodes and you do a lymph node biopsy or whether you might give them chemotherapy or, or not. What would be the sort of main types that you think we should know about as trainees? I think DFSP and um, synovial sarcoma and liposarcomas, well-differentiated uh, lipomatous tumors, those sorts of things come up a little bit often. Is there anything else you'd suggest we look at? Um, I think the main 
thing with sarcoma it would be to start off with general principles of treatment well investigations and treatment because there are so many of them um, it is difficult to I think it would be unreasonable to expect you to know everything but there are some as you say where there are a couple special things that you should know about them so I guess in terms of general principles biopsy (laughs) imaging and uh, discussion in the MDT. So they'd be the three sort of main things. And the biopsy, because you need to know what it is so that you don't perform a procedure which is going to impact adversely on the outcome. And adequate imaging so that you can plan your surgery or radiotherapy or whatever treatment. Um, So you image the local site and you perform staging, which often is a PET scan because that gives you good information about how aggressive the tumour is as well and which part of the tumour would be best to biopsy and MDT discussion because they are rare tumours and um, so should be discussed by people who deal with them more frequently. In terms of sort of special ones, there are some sarcomas that metastasize to lymph nodes, um, not many of them. So clear cell sarcoma is one, um, epithelioid sarcoma, and I think some of the rhabdomyosarcomas do as well. But as a general rule, they don't. Um, and it would tend to be something that you would, well, you would assess for you exam, examine the relevant nodal basins and the PET scan would be helpful in that as well. Other quirky things are like the DFSP expressing the platelet-derived growth factor receptors, so being appropriate for targeted treatment. Angiosarcomas are special because um, radiotherapy is a risk factor for them. But you can have also, they can arise de novo, so um, not always associated with radiotherapy uh, and can be treated with paclitaxel in the neoadjuvant setting. I think knowing when you're studying for the exam, you learn about lots of different syndromes. And um, so for sarcoma, Leifraumeni, neurofibromatosis, type one, because they can have malignant peripheral nerve sheath tumours. So I guess that's a special thing about MPNSTs is um, if the patient has um, NF1, particularly with complex um, plexiform neurofibromas, certain um, deletions in their genes, uh, risk factors for that. People with NF1 have a 10% lifetime risk of developing an MPNST. So, so I think knowing for sarcoma, knowing the risk factors for developing sarcoma, so previous radiation ex- um, exposure, chronic lymphedema, Genetic syndromes such as Leifraumeni, um, NF1, are the main ones to be cognizant of. When you're working upper soft tissue sarcoma, how do you decide whether that patient might be fit for limb salvage? Is it mainly around the examination or do you look at the biology and how do you sort of plan whether or not you can remove it locally or whether you need an amputation? Although I do examine my patients, um, the main factors for decision-making are the from the radiology, so the MRI. Limb salvage is pretty commonly practised. Um, it's un- quite uncommon for someone to need an amputation for treatment of sarcoma. And generally, we would decide to do an amputation, firstly, if in preserving the limb, the procedure is so complex, their limb's not really going to be very functional anyway. If the tumour is so extensive, it's involving you know, more than one compartment. And so when you remove it, they're not really going to, the patient's not really going to have much function. Sometimes as a palliative thing, amputation is um, the best thing for the patient. Again, we try to avoid amputation where possible. And in terms of nerve, you can resect someone's sciatic nerve and not have to amputate their leg. So it sounds pretty radical, but I do have a patient who had an NPNST of his sciatic nerve who had a sciatic nerve resection and is, we, we've managed to preserve his leg. It's very, it, it is patient specific as well. Um, but yeah, main thing is how big, well, it's not just how big is the tumour, it's where the tumour is that's the main thing what structures are involved. Do you use radiotherapy neoadjuvantly for 
peripheral or you know soft tissue sarcomas? Yes, we do. Yeah, pretty yep. routinely. Yep. yep, yep, that's our routine. And I went down a deep dark hole of the different um, terminology around resections of soft tissue tumors. So whether it's a sort of intracapsular or a, you know um, marginal uh, incision, marginal, yeah. 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 <laughs> Do you, what what would you be aiming for, or and does radiotherapy influence that? Like, can you get away with a closer excision if you give radiotherapy? Yeah. So they say that radiotherapy enables you to preserve more like nerves and things. So if you've got a tumor that's adjacent to a major nerve or major blood vessel and it's not infiltrating, um, then radiotherapy, um, the rationale for that is so that you can preserve those things. There are different approaches. So uh, you do want to have clear margins and wide excisions, and that's going to be dictated by where the tumour is located as well because obviously in some areas you can't get a very big margin of clearance. If something's in a muscle, for example, I try to get a five centimetre margin around it, sort of proximally distally to the tumour. Avoid intracapsular dissections or marginal excisions. You want to get a a margin of normal tissue around the tumour. This has been so helpful. I'm sure that a lot of the listeners will feel the same way as me, that sarcoma just feels like such an insurmountable topic when you go looking at the curriculum and then looking at or starting to read about sarcoma, it's sort of really difficult to know where to start. Yeah, I think that's true. But most sarcomas are just, it's a lump. It's a, you know, you just treat it as a, it's a cancer lump, right? That's a really bad way to describe it. So it's a sarcoma. Really the subtype doesn't make a lot of difference to your treatment approach because they're going to be treated with surgery probably radiotherapy as well. Unlikely that chemo will be used because they're not very chemosensitive tumours. So the main things are establishing the diagnosis and and managing it and discussing it in the MDT um, so that don't put yourself in a situation where you have inadvertently removed a sarcoma thinking that it was an infected sebaceous cyst or um, a lipoma or something. So establish the diagnosis, stage the patient, discuss at MDT, pretty much always give radiotherapy nearly and excise with wide margin. Yes. Sarcoma done. (laughs) Yes, exactly. (laughs) Because I don't think they're going to really expect you to know the hundred subtypes of sarcomas. I mean, the common ones, you you should know what the common ones are. So liposarcoma, liomyosarcoma, Pleomorph- so there's a one um, that's undifferentiated pleomorphic sarcoma. So they're the three main ones. And then you've got malignant peripheral nerve sheath tumour, angiosarcoma, maybe a couple of others which are much less common. It is a bit daunting looking at the list. The last topic I wanted to talk about today is desmoid tumours. I was going to do a separate episode on this, but it doesn't really fit in anywhere else. And I've already talked about FAP separately, so I'm going to put it in here. Desmoid tumors are a type of benign, rare, fibroblastic proliferation that can occur at any location in the body. It's basically a proliferation of fibroblasts or myofibroblasts, and it is a locally aggressive type of tumor that doesn't have any potential for metastases or dedifferentiation. Most desmoid tumors are sporadic, so they're not associated with a familial syndrome. And approximately 85% of sporadic desmoids have a beta-catenin mutation, which is an important diagnostic tool. About 15% of desmoids occur in patients who have FAP, familial adenomatous polyposis. And patients who have FAP and desmoids are considered to have Gardner's syndrome. Because of this relationship, patients who are diagnosed with desmoid tumors should undergo molecular testing or an evaluation for FAP. One other thing to note with FAP and desmoids is that often in these situations, the desmoid tumors 
develop intra-abdominally following a trauma. And in these patients, surgery is the most common intra-abdominal trauma that they will undertake as a risk-reducing colectomy. So actually in patients who have evidence of Desmoids or Gardner syndrome, who also have FAP, surgery is delayed for as long as possible because they can develop pretty significant morbidity and even mortality related to Desmoid development. Desmoid tumors can occur anywhere in the body, but the most common site is in the intra-abdominal location, typically related to the small bowel mesentery. Other sites for desmoids include the abdominal wall, the trunk, extremities, and rarely they can present as a breast desmoid, and they can be mistaken for a primary or recurrent breast cancer in those cases. They can be classified according to their location, so either intra-abdominal, abdominal wall, or extra-abdominal. Typically, desmoid tumors present as a painless mass, or they may be found incidentally on imaging. Intra-abdominal desmoids can cause intestinal obstruction or bowel ischemia, which can also be a presentation. So a desmoid will present as a soft tissue mass, and it can be difficult to differentiate on imaging from soft tissue tumors or other types of soft tissue sarcomas we've been talking about already. Especially for mesenteric masses, they can also be mistaken for neuroendocrine tumors. In terms of workup, a desmoid tumor should be investigated initially with cross-sectional imaging of wherever it is located with either CT or MRI. And typically following this, a biopsy will be performed. Typically, this will be a core needle biopsy. In terms of the histopathological findings of a desmoid tumor, it usually looks like a monoclonal fibroblastic proliferation. So this looks like small bundles of spindle cells surrounded by a fibrous stroma. And typically, they have low cellularity and on immunohistochemistry, it will be positive for vimentin and smooth muscle actin. But importantly, they will be negative for Desmin and S100, with Desmin being a stain for leiomyosarcoma and S100 being a schwannoma or Schwann cell tumor marker. As well as germ cell testing, once a desmoid tumor is confirmed, a colonoscopy is also recommended to rule out colonic polyps. So let's talk about the management of desmoid tumors. Previously, resection was recommended as the primary treatment for desmoids, but we now know that about 20 to 30% of desmoids will have spontaneous regression and about 50% will remain stable over serial monitoring. So there's only a small percent of patients whose desmoids will actually grow or progress. So there's a number of different approaches, and this includes a watch and wait approach where you do serial imaging of the desmoid over um, three months for the first year and then six months for one to five years and then yearly after that. And if the tumor is reducing in size or stable and the patient's asymptomatic, then you would consider no active treatment for that desmoid. Patients that have tumor growth on consecutive imaging studies or symptomatic patients should be considered for treatment of the desmoid and the treatment should be tailored for the location of the tumor, its potential resectability and the potential morbidity of the different treatment options. There's actually quite a few different treatment options for desmoids. This includes surgery, radiotherapy, medical therapies, including non-steroidals, chemotherapies, and different targeted treatments. In extremity desmoids, isolated limb perfusion has been used, and also cryoablation of desmoids is an option. In terms of surgery, the aim of surgery should be an R0 resection. And it's important to know that for desmoids, they often have an infiltrative margin, so it can be difficult to achieve an R0 resection. 
The other surgical consideration has to be proximity to surrounding structures. So for intra-abdominal desmoids, if they are involving the small bowel mesentery, that may be a contraindication to resection. And for limb desmoids, then function needs to be considered. And you obviously want to try and maintain the patient's limb function and consider other treatment options if the morbidity of surgery would be significant. In terms of other treatment options, desmoids are quite radiosensitive, so radiotherapy is an option for these tumours. Saying that, though, it's usually not used for intra-abdominal desmoids. It's more used for desmoids that are located in the extremities, on the trunk or head and neck, and also can be considered in recurrent desmoids where previous surgery has been used or if patients aren't a good candidate for surgery. In a recent phase two trial, the three-year local control rates with radiotherapy were over 80%. There are a number of medical treatments for desmoids that have been used in the past. This includes non-steroidal anti-inflammatory drugs, targeted treatments such as tyrosine kinase inhibitors, tamoxifen, and chemotherapy, including methotrexate and vinblastine or anthracycline-based regimes. Given we now know that a number of desmoids will spontaneously regress and there hasn't been any proper randomized control trials looking at these medical therapies, it's not actually known how, I guess, effective these might be, but they are still an option for desmoids. You would consider systemic disease in patients who have locally advanced disease, who are symptomatic or who surgical resection would result in significant morbidity. And obviously, you would have to manage these patients at a specialty centre with a multidisciplinary team to determine which of those systemic therapies may be indicated for the patient. Serafinib, which is a tyrosine kinase inhibitor, has been found to have an 81% response rate for progressive or symptomatic desmoid tumours in a recent trial. And another interesting treatment is cryoablation. So this is where a probe is placed into the desmoid and freezing and thawing cycles are used to lead to cell death. And in a recent trial, that also had an 86% success rate at 12 months with non-progressive disease. Thanks for listening to today's episode on soft tissue, sarcoma and dermoids. I'm sorry it was a little bit cobbled together. Julie and I had so much fun talking about melanoma, sarcomas and Merkel cell tumors that it ended up not really fitting together nicely into an episode. So I hope this sort of format means that you've gotten more out of our discussions. As usual, please remember to rate, review and subscribe to the podcast. It makes it easy for others to find and I really do love reading your reviews and suggestions. It's time to close up. Thanks for listening to First Incision. If you have any comments or feedback, send us a message at firstincisionpodcast at gmail.com or follow us on Instagram at First Incision. Happy studying! <laughs>